Well, brethren, the clock back there says that it's 10 o'clock, so time that we get started. Uh, I'll have to remember to turn that back. If I could have you turn in your Bibles, please, this morning once again to the book of Jude. Our text this morning, we will be looking at verses 17 through 23. Jude 17 through 23, and follow along with me, please, as I read. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Well, before we look together at this passage of God's Word, let's once again bow together in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you once again for giving us this day. And Lord, we thank you that this is your day, a day in which we as your people are able to gather together and to worship your name, uh, to hear your word read and preached and taught to be able to join together in singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to encourage one another in the Lord. And Father, we pray that in all these endeavors that we would do so with all of our heart. And Lord, we pray that your name be glorified in all of these activities. We pray for those of our number who are not able to be with us this morning. Be with them and bless them where they are. And Lord, we pray that... uh, For any who in our midst this morning who as of yet may not know you, we pray that your spirit would be at work in their heart even this day to convict and convince them of sin. And Lord, we pray that their eyes might be opened, that they might see the glories of our Savior and put their faith and trust in him. We pray that you would bless our time together now and we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, you may have already noticed that as we've read together our text this morning, that there's an unmistakable and very distinct change of tone in this latter part of Jude's epistle as compared to what he has written up to this point. The aim of the writer thus far in the first 16 verses has been to expose and to condemn the wicked and deceptive practices of false teachers. And as Jude brings this epistle to a conclusion, keeping all that he has said up to this point in mind, there's a very important question that remains and needs to be answered. And that question is this. How are we as believers, how are we as members of Cornerstone Bible Church to prepare for and to rightly respond to apostasy and falsehood that Jude has just finished describing. In other words, what does contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints practically look like in the everyday life of the child of God? After all, the warnings given by Jude are just as relevant today as they were for those believers back in the first century to whom this letter was directly written. And as a result, they demand a practical response from each one of us who named the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we will find here in our text this morning, the writer provides for these faithful believers loving encouragement, and he provides for them clear guidelines to follow so that they might be enabled to effectively combat apostasy and false teaching. Jude understood that those to whom he was writing needed a plan of attack to deal with the great challenges 
that lay before them with regard to this particular issue and that they needed to be proactive in their fight for the faith. And as we are going to see this morning, they needed to do this by not only reinforcing their own spiritual armor, but also that it would be necessary for them to be prepared to come to the aid of others who may need assistance in this fight. Well, the passage before us begins with these words, but you beloved. This is the second time in this epistle that Jude refers to those to whom he is writing as beloved. He used it back in verse 3, and then he will use it once again down in verse 20, where he will say again, but you beloved. In all three of these instances, Jude uses the word agapitos, which in secular Greek was used to refer to a child. And most often it was used to refer to an only child to whom all parental love was bestowed. That's the word that he uses in each one of these instances. Eight times in the gospel, this term is used to describe God the Father's love toward his Son, the Lord Jesus. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That word, once again, there is used, agapitos. This word is also used frequently in the New Testament to speak of the great love that God has for his children. For example, we read in Romans 1 and verse 7 that Paul addressed the Roman believers as those who are beloved of God. Again, agapitos is used there. But then also we see this word used multiple times in the epistles by Paul, by Peter, by James, and by John as a means of conveying their deep affection for those to whom they were writing. And here in Jude, we find the writer expressing his love for them in exactly the same way. Now, there's some debate among commentators as to whether the term beloved used here in Jude refers to God's great love that he has toward his children, or like the apostles, is it used here as a personal expression of deep affection that one has for another. Well, the argument in favor of the first view cites Jude's statement in verse 1, where he refers to these believers as beloved in God the Father. Now, here the verb agapeo is used, and it is in the perfect tense, referring to the placement of God's love on believers in eternity past, which continues not only in the present, but will remain throughout all of eternity future as well. Thus they would argue that the term beloved used in verses 3, 17, and 20 are tied to the reality of God's deep and enduring love that he has for his people. Now this is certainly an issue that we can't be dogmatic on. It's obvious from the overall tenor of this book as well as the use of the term elsewhere in the New Testament that both are true. And whatever Jude's intent was in the use of this word, the fact of the matter remains that those to whom he is now addressing these words are indeed beloved. Beloved by God and beloved by the writer Jude. And it is to such people that the writer gives the following words of exhortation. To combat apostasy, Jude reminds these believers here in our text that they are to be diligent in three specific areas. First of all, they are to remain aware of the reality and danger of apostasy. We find that here in verses 17 through 19. And then secondly, they are to foster spiritual maturity to guard against apostasy, we find that here in verses 20 and 21. And then thirdly, Jude says that they need to be prepared to help those who have been influenced by apostasy. And we find that here in verses 22 and 23. So first of all then, Jude reminds these believers here in our text that they are to remain aware of the reality 
and the danger of apostasy. In other words, he says, remember the things that you have been told regarding this issue. Don't forget them. Jude reminds them of this in verses 17 through 19 where he writes again, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, In the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded devoid of the Spirit. He begins by saying to these believers, but you, beloved, ought to remember. The word remember that he uses here simply means to bring to mind something or to think of something again. And in the context, it implies the act of giving serious attention to or consideration of the matter that he is here going to be speaking of. Now you might remember back a few weeks ago that in our study of 2 Peter 3, the Apostle Peter used this exact same terminology in verses 1 and 2, where there he informed his readers of the primary purpose for writing the, the second epistle to them. You remember that he said, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember. And in the same manner, in reminding his readers that they are to remember, Jude expresses this directive in the imperative. He says you ought to remember. What I am saying to you is of vital importance. It is crucial for you to act upon the things that I am saying to you. There's a real sense of urgency being expressed here by Jude in this phrase. And it's intended to stir up his audience to action. And that action that he says here is, I want you to remember. And what is it that they are to remember? Well, he continues by saying, remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ that they were saying to you in the last time there will be mockers following after their own lusts. Here Jude almost quotes verbatim the same exhortation that was given by Peter over in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 2 through 4, where he writes, Remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue just as it was from the beginning of creation." He says that they were to remember the words spoken beforehand. The term words or rima literally means that which is or has been uttered by the living voice. And it refers to the spoken word. Thus he uses the term spoken to describe its method of delivery to them. In the context, it would appear that Jude is making reference to the substance of what the apostles were in the habit of saying about these matters in their ordinary teaching and preaching to them. The tense of the verb used in this phrase, that they were saying to you, means that they were continually saying these things, having in mind the things that were verbally communicated. Now certainly the word spoken would include the things that the apostles had written as well, as what they wrote and what they preached were not contrary to one another. And this is obvious from the fact that Jude continues here in verse 17 by quoting the words spoken by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 3, that in the last times there will be mockers following after their own lusts. Now we have to keep in mind that back in the first century, 
Believers did not possess leather-bound copies of the completed canon of Scripture. Uh, they didn't have cell phones with a bunch of Bible apps on them that they could just sit down and pull up any passage and any number of translations that they wanted to. They didn't have that luxury like we have. When churches received letters from the apostles back then, uh, they didn't have the luxury either of taking the document back to the church office to have several hundred copies copied off to hand out to those who were in the congregation. In fact, throughout the course of much of human history, truth has been communicated verbally through the reading and through the expounding of the scriptures. And that is why the word of God repeatedly places an important emphasis on the relationship between the preaching and the hearing of the word of God. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The communication of the truth orally is a practice that has taken place throughout the centuries. And it is a practice that you and I cherish even today, even though we have written copies of the word of God to ourselves. It is an integral part of our worship. The dynamic of speaking and hearing the truth has always been and always will be an important part in the life of the believer. And so Jude exhorts those to whom he is writing to remember the words that were spoken. He says, keep them in the forefront of your minds. Don't allow yourselves to forget them. But Jude identifies these words as having been spoken beforehand, speaking of the prophetic nature of these words that he is referring to here. The word proario that Jude uses here is made up of two Greek words, pro meaning before and ario meaning to say or to declare. And so these words that they were to remember were words that were said or they were words that had been declared in the past. And this implies that these words that were not foreign to these believers, as Jude points out the fact that they had heard them many times before. He says that they were words spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter said that these words were spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. As the prophets and the Lord Jesus himself repeatedly warned of the certain infiltration of the false prophets among the people of God, so the apostles of Christ were diligent in communicating that same message. The fact that Jude refers to the apostles in the plural form indicates that they had been warned of this issue by more than one apostle. This was something that all of the apostles, as they spoke to the people of God, reminded and warned thereof repeatedly. We know that Paul made many references to this subject in his various epistles, and certainly Peter spoke very clearly to many of the same people to whom Jude was now writing concerning this same issue. This was a subject that the apostles had warned these people of again and again, both through the spoken as well as the written word. The phrase that Jude uses, that they were saying to you, indicates this fact very clearly. And again, the word saying here is in the imperfect tense, meaning that this was a repeated action. It was something that they did again and again. In other words, Jude reminds these people of the fact that the apostles had told them over and over again that false teachers were going to most certainly infiltrate the church and oppose the truth that they had received and believed in. Now, specifically, what was it that Jude's readers were repeatedly told by the apostles 
and they were commanded here to remember. Well, it was this, that in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. He says they were told that in the last time, or as Peter puts it, in the last days. That word that's used here uh, is the period of time between the first and second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says during that time there are going to be mockers. This is the first of five notable characteristics that Jude reminds these believers that they are to remember and that they are to take particular note of. Characteristics that the apostles have spoken beforehand, warning them of. And so he says, first of all, that these men are going to be mockers. They are mockers. The term mock means to deride, to scoff, or to make fun of something or someone else. In other words, these individuals are people who treat with contempt and ridicule matters of vital importance as it relates to the truth of God's word. Though Jude doesn't specifically identify here the object of their mockery, Peter points out that one of the specific objects of their ridicule relates to the important truths regarding the coming of Christ. Again, Peter says in 2 Peter 3 that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. These false teachers will show their contempt for Christ's return by ridiculing and deriding its certainty. And they will regard those who by faith have embraced and long for that event to come. As people who are foolish, they think that they are gullible and weak-minded individuals. But not only does Jude say here that they are mockers, but he goes on to remind his readers that they are also ungodly. They are mockers and they are ungodly. They follow, he says, after their own ungodly lusts. This characteristic of these individuals has already been underscored by the writer in previous verses. He referred to these false teachers back in verse 4 as ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness. And then in verse 15, in quoting Enoch's prophecy concerning the Lord coming with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on these men, he says that the Lord will convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So here again, this is a theme as he's talking about these false teachers. They are ungodly, 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 ungodly. And then again in verse 16, he points out that these men follow after their own lusts. To follow after literally means to go from one place to another. And in this case, they go from one sinful passion to another one. This phrase speaks of their predominant way of conduct, the prevalent course of their life. They follow after their own ungodly lusts with a blatant disregard for God's holy word and his righteous judgment. The present tense that Jude uses here means that this is a way of life for them. It is something that is habitual. They give free rein to their sinful passions, having no capacity or desire to practice or to pursue godliness because of the fact that these men are yet dead in their trespasses and sins. The term ungodly here means a want of reverence or piety toward God. These people conduct themselves in such a way as to effectively deny God's existence and write over them 
as supreme ruler and authority. In other words, these men have rejected the knowledge of God. They fearlessly seek to indulge their fleshly appetites without any restraint whatsoever. And they promote tolerance of such a lifestyle without any regard for the impending judgment of God upon such actions. And so Jude says, that first of all, that they are mockers. Secondly, he says they are ungodly. And then the third characteristic of these false teachers that Jude reminds them of is that they are divisive. They are divisive. He continues to say, these are the ones who cause divisions. Now this is the only place in the New Testament where this particular word translated divisions is used. And it means to disjoin. It means to mark off. It means to put a boundary between. And here in this context, it means to separate from one another by drawing a boundary. That's what this term division means. This word is used in the present tense, meaning that this is their continual practice. And it's used in the active voice, which indicates that this is a choice of their will. They are not blindly going into that and not having a clue what it is that they are doing. This is their intent. They come into the church in order to cause divisions. The picture given here conveys the idea that the intent of these false teachers was to draw a line through the church with the aim of setting off one group against another. These apostates were not uniters, but rather they are dividers. They cause divisions. Paul makes mention of this very characteristic of false teachers over in Acts 20 and verse 30, where he warns the elders in the church at Ephesus that these would be men who would arise from within their own congregation, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Again, that was their intent. Here we see it is to divide the church. They will portray themselves as being superior to those who have diligently taught the truth in their midst. They are going to speak attractive words, seeking to lure some away from the truth of God's word. And they will indeed appeal to some in the congregation, professing to have a deeper knowledge of the word. They have a better understanding of the truth. And because of that, these men have risen from within the body. Some in the church who know and trust them will give ear to what they say. Such men exalt themselves and their own agendas, resulting in division and strife within the body. So Jude reminds his readers of the fact that these are the ones who cause divisions. But not only then are these false teachers mockers, not only are they ungodly and divisive, but fourthly, Jude reminds these people that they are worldly-minded. They are worldly-minded. He says, these are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded. If you have the King James Version in front of you, you will note that the translator translated this, world, this word as sensual. Literally, it means soulish or pertaining to the soul or the life. It refers to behavior that is typical of human nature in contrast to behavior that is characteristic of one who is under the control of the Spirit of God. Jude's expression characterizes these men as being governed by their natural powers and impulses. It describes the natural man. Paul uses this same term over in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14, where he says that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually 
appraised. Biblically speaking, this describes perfectly what Jude here is speaking of. The worldly-minded man or the natural man is one who lives as if there is nothing beyond this physical life and there were no needs other than those needs which are material and temporal in nature. He does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. His values are not grounded at all upon that which is spiritual and eternal. Rather, they are solely based upon the things that are physical and material. This man is incapable of understanding or comprehending spiritual things. He lives for what he can get through his physical senses. His motto is, like many today, if it feels good, do it. Or, how can it be wrong if it feels so right? This is the motto of such an individual. This is the mindset of the worldly man. And it is one of the chief characteristics of those who are false teachers. And then the final trait that he mentions here in our text flows from the fact that these men are worldly-minded, and that is this, that these men are also devoid of the Spirit of God. They are devoid of the Spirit. Based on the previous characteristic, it's obvious that these men were physically alive, but having never been regenerated by the Spirit of God, they were spiritually dead. They are religious frauds who pay lip service to things that are spiritual in nature, but by observing their lives, it was abundantly clear that the Spirit of God did not dwell within them. Paul's words found in Titus 1 and verse 16 describe the terrible condition of these false teachers, where he says of them that they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny them, deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless of any good deed. That's the description that is given here by Paul to Titus, and that is exactly who Jude is referring to here. Warren Wiersbe asks the very important question, how can we discern between the soulish and the spirit? To which he answers by saying these words, and I quote, by using the word of God which is able to divide soul and spirit, and by paying close attention to the witness of the spirit of God within. A soulish ministry magnifies man but the Spirit glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Spirit is ministering through the Word, there is edification. But when the soul is merely manufacturing a ministry, there is entertainment, or at best, only intellectual education. That's the, that's the difference between a true ministry and a false ministry. And that is an important principle, brethren, to keep in mind. And so to combat apostasy, Jude instructs these believers to whom he is writing in the first place that they are to remain aware of the reality and danger of apostasy by remembering the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then secondly, Jude encourages these believers to foster spiritual maturity to guard against apostasy. He tells them that they are to foster spiritual maturity to guard against apostasy. We find this in verses 20 and 21, where he continues by saying, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. In order for a believer to exercise spiritual discernment 
and guard himself from being led astray by false teaching, we need to remain diligent regarding our own spiritual growth and maturity. That's the point that Jude is making here. Like the wolf who preys upon the weak and vulnerable of the herd, so the false teacher will seek to persuade those in the congregation who are spiritually weak and immature. And Jude knew this to be true. And so he lovingly but firmly instructs each one of these believers to whom he is writing that they are to be diligent in spiritual maturity. Here he makes it clear that spiritual growth demands action on the part of the believer. Now while God in his grace and mercy has quickened us and imparts to his children not only the desire but also the enablement to grow, as scripture says, it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It is also true that it is the believer's responsibility to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. And so with this in mind, Jude instructs these believers that they are to build, they are to pray, they are to keep, and they are to wait. And once again, before giving them words of instruction, he expresses his affection for them by once again calling them beloved. And then he instructs them to pursue or to be diligent in four very important areas regarding to a believer's spiritual growth to the end that they, as well as we, might be equipped to stand firm against apostasy. So first of all, he reminds these believers here that they are to build themselves up on their most holy faith. And to make that personal, we are to build ourselves up on our most holy faith if we are to guard ourselves against false teaching. Jude begins by saying, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. In order to recognize error and effectively fight for the truth, we must establish a firm foundation of biblical doctrine. The best defense against false doctrine is sound doctrine, for only the truth of God's word is able to effectively counter the lies of Satan. We must never forget, brethren, that the spiritual battle that you and I are engaged in is ultimately a battle for truth. It is a battle, then the battlefield is our mind. Churches that minimize the importance of sound doctrine leave their congregations vulnerable to the destructive influences of ravenous wolves. And with this reality in mind, Jude instructs his readers to build themselves upon your most holy faith. The metaphor of building up means, speaks of personal edification. It speaks of spiritual growth. This is accomplished through the study of God's word and the correct application of it. In Acts 20 and verse 32, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And so here he mentions, how is it that the believer is able to be built up? He commends them to God and to the word of his grace. Paul again says in Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12, that God gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. For what? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. That's why God has given us these individuals in the church, for that purpose, that we might be built up. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 2, Peter wrote that believers should long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow. 
in respect to salvation. In 1 John 2 and verse 14, John states that those believers who are spiritually strong and who are capable of effectively and successfully waging war for the truth are those in whom the word of God abides. He says, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. So how have these men overcome the wicked one? It's by the word of God abiding in them. So they are first of all instructed to build themselves upon their most holy faith, which is the foundation upon which the Christian life is founded. The substance of what the word of God teaches, the object of our personal belief and our confidence. But not only then were they to build themselves up on their most holy faith, but the second essential element of our spiritual maturity involves praying in the Spirit. We, brethren, are to pray in the Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit is not one form of prayer among several different forms. There, might, there are those who would teach today that there is prayer and then there is praying in the Holy Spirit. That's not true. It is the only way that is truly effective, God-honoring prayer that is to be offered. There is no substitute for it. If our prayers are to be heard, if they are to be effectual, then they must be offered up to God in the Spirit. In Romans 8, verses 26 and 27, the Apostle Paul writes there that the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts know what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. It is abundantly clear from this text that the Holy Spirit plays a vital role in the prayer life of the believer. Now, while much could be said about this matter, and our time is very much limited this morning, let me just point out a few things regarding what I believe Jude is referring to here. Unlike the ungodly, who Jude has just said earlier are devoid of the Spirit, we know as believers that the Holy Spirit resides within the heart of each one of us. Scripture says that if any man does not possess the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And since this is the case, when you and I pray, we pray out of hearts that are indwelt, illuminated, and filled by the Spirit of God. Now with this in mind, we recognize then that our prayers are under his guidance and they are under his influence. Thus we pray in faith, believing that the Spirit prompts, purifies, and directs our prayers in accordance with the will of God. We have confidence that as we pray, the Spirit makes up for our weaknesses, interceding on our behalf with what the Apostle Paul refers to as groanings which cannot be uttered. The Spirit gives you and I assurance as we pray that we are the children of God. And as a result, we are made to confidently cry out to our Father, Abba, Father. In this way, the Spirit of God moves us to prayer. He motivates and enables and energizes our prayer. And what a blessing it is to be able to confidently come before the throne of grace, knowing that we do so through the merits and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that we come with the help and the strength of the indwelling Spirit of God who directs our prayers and intercedes for us according to the perfect will of our Heavenly Father. And so in addition to building ourselves up in our most holy faith, Jude would remind us of the fact that praying in the Holy Spirit 
will most certainly cause us to grow, becoming more spiritually mature, that we might be better equipped to guard our souls against those who would seek to turn us from the faith. The third spiritual element of our spiritual maturity, Jude continues by saying, involves keeping yourselves in the love of God. This is an extremely important principle for every believer to take seriously. Jude uses the term keep here and underscores this. It is a command calling for urgent action. And it is in the active voice which means that the subject, yourselves, makes this a volitional choice. In other words, it is an act of one's own will to carry out this action. To keep yourselves in the love of God means that we are to remain in what commentators refer to as the sphere of God's love or the place of his blessing. To put it simply, Jude is saying that we must remain obedient to that which God has commanded since divine blessing is assured only to those who abide within the sphere of obedience to the word of God. <clears throat> the Lord Jesus in John 15, 9 through 11, makes this point abundantly clear when he himself says, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. And then he uses this term, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Here Jesus underscores the blessing that comes with abiding in my love. He says that the joy of the believer is made full when we walk in a course of obedience to that which the word of God has commanded. On the other hand, if we are disobedient, we then move from a position of blessing to the position of chastisement. Under these circumstances, our standing with God as it relates to our salvation remains the same, his love for us as his children never changes, but that fact is demonstrated in that he will not allow us to continue in a course of obedience, but through discipline and sometimes grievous discipline, as the writer to the Hebrews puts it, we might be restored to the way of holiness. He says, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And so to guard ourselves against apostasy, Jude tells these believers that they must establish themselves upon a firm foundation of biblical doctrine, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, that their prayer life must be under the guidance and influence of the Holy Spirit, and thirdly, that they must abide in the love of God by walking in obedience. To his word. But then finally, Jude gives us a fourth means by which we are to guard ourselves, and that is that we are to wait patiently for the Lord's return. We are to wait anxiously for the Lord's return. He writes, wait anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. The verb translated wait anxiously means to wait for or to welcome and implies that we are to do this with great expectancy. 
What Jude is saying here is that we as the people of God are to live every moment of our lives with eternity in view as we eagerly anticipate the return of our Savior. And on that great day, all of us who have trusted in him will experience for ourselves Christ's final mercy. We will know then unspeakable joy as we will stand glorified in his presence throughout all of eternity. With this glad prospect in mind, brethren, may we be encouraged to, as Timothy was, to fight the good fight of faith and to lay hold upon eternal life to which we were called. And so having exhorted these believers to remain aware of the reality and danger of apostasy and to foster spiritual maturity to guard against apostasy, Jude concludes his instruction on how to guard against apostasy by instructing his readers to be prepared to help those who have been influenced by apostasy. They are to be prepared to help those who have been influenced by apostasy. He continues in verses 22 and 23 to remind these people, and, having have, mer and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Here in these final words of our text, we are reminded that we, are, we not only have a duty and responsibility to identify and oppose the false teachers and their error, but we are also commanded here to lovingly and earnestly call not only them, but all who have been influenced by their false teaching to turn from the false and destructive path that they are on and to walk in the way of truth as it is revealed in God's holy word. Here he identifies three groups of people that we have the opportunity to minister the gospel to who have to one degree or the other been affected by false teaching. They are the doubters, they are the followers, and they are the teachers. First of all, he addresses how we ought to relate to those who are the doubters. Jude says, have mercy on some who are doubting. The deceptive and heretical teachings made by false teachers, along with their wicked lifestyles, will cause confusion for some among the body. That is exactly what took place in the church at Corinth, as the Apostle Paul testifies over in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, where he writes, I am afraid that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Jude calls these people, people here doubters. The Greek word that is used means possessing a wavering uncertainty. In other words, these individuals are struggling between two completing claims of what they are told of is truth. They have been snared in the web of deception and are unsure as to what is true and what is not. These are the weak whom the false teachers love to prey on. They are individuals who are always vacillating, unsure, and bogged down so often in doubt. To these people, Jude says, have mercy on them. Now, showing mercy to such individuals does not mean ignoring the serious nature of the false teaching or commending the weak for their vacillation, but rather it means that we who are strong in the faith in weakness and patience, must go to such individuals with the truth and graciously present to them the gospel before they become permanently trapped in the heresy that they are wondering about. He says, don't crush them or condemn such individuals. He says, go to them and help them. 
But then secondly, not only are there going to be doubters that we need to minister to, but secondly, he says that there are going to be followers that we need to minister to. As we come to this second group that Jude identifies, the challenge becomes even greater than the first. He says concerning them, save others, snatching them out of the fire. These are the people who have gone one step further from those who are doubting. They have been convinced that the false teaching that they have heard of is indeed true. That is why our interaction with them is no longer simply a matter of showing mercy. Instead, our interaction with them now becomes a rescue mission. In humility and faith, we who would remain faithful must be willing to be used by God, as Jude puts it here, to save others. Though God himself is the ultimate source of salvation, he uses weak instruments such as ourselves to snatch sinners out of the fire. The term snatch means to seize something or to take something or someone by force. He pictures here souls who have been singed by the very fire of hell, as it were, a foreshadowing of the eternal condemnation that they face if they continue to embrace this false teaching. James wrote about this action in James 5, 19 and 20, where he wrote, My brethren, if any of you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The only way to rescue such people before it is too late is to expose and crush their false beliefs by the power of the word of God. That means what it, that's what it means to rescue them. That's what it means to save them. The Lord Jesus himself modeled for us this principle during his earthly ministry, didn't he? To those who doubted, our Savior patiently and gently presented the gospel to them. But to those who had embraced and taught false teaching, he bluntly exposed their error and commanded them to repent. Thus, for such people, we are to save them, snatching them out of the fire. But then finally, there are the teachers. How ought we relate to those who propagate false teaching and heresy? These are the ones, the teachers, who not only are deeply committed to their false teaching, but as we have been reminded throughout this epistle repeatedly, they actively propagate that same teaching. These are the leaders, and they are the articulators of heresy. Jude here acknowledges that there may be occasions when the opportunity presents itself to reach out to even these people with the power of the gospel. In such instances, however, extreme caution must be taken, Jude points out to us. He says that for them, have mercy with fear, indicating the very sobering and frightening nature of this kind of gospel outreach. This fear that he is referring to flows from an awareness that when one gets too close to that level of corruption, that level of apostate error, that it has the potential to one degree or another to somehow taint the one who is seeking to turn them from the error of his ways. And so he says, show mercy, but also do it with great fear. He says, on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. The picture that Jude uses here is very graphic. To be polluted by the flesh literally means to be stained by bodily function. It refers to the potential physical defilement that one may experience through the handling of another person's soiled underwear. That's literally what it means. This striking analogy is designed to warn us to be extremely careful in such situations that we do not become spiritually defiled 
when coming into close proximity to blatant heresy and those who actively propagate it. Well, brethren, we are engaged in a spiritual battle, aren't we? And we are assured in Scripture of the final outcome of the conflict that you and I are engaged in. Next week, Lord willing, we will consider those final words of Jude that give great encouragement to we, the people of God, who are engaged in this fight. Where he says, Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Fanny Crosby said, Not to the strong is the battle, not to the swift is the race, but to the true and the faithful. Victory is promised through grace. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, these are very sobering words, but at the same time they are very encouraging words. Lord, we thank you for the truth that it's not to the strong is the battle and not to the swift is the race, but to the true and the faithful. Victory is promised through grace. Lord, we pray that you would help us by the help of your Holy Spirit to be strong in the battle and swift in the race. Lord, we thank you that the outcome is assured, that through the Lord Jesus Christ and through his work on Calvary's cross, through the help of your Holy Spirit, that we will indeed be triumphant over evil and the wicked one. Lord, we pray that you would impress these things upon our heart this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.